John chapter 11, we come to what many consider one of the most extraordinary miracles of Jesus. But I want to uh, put a little bit of water on that expectation. The raising of Lazarus from the dead should not seem miraculous out of place to us if we recognize that Jesus is the one that creates life to begin with. If we are to understand that Jesus in his divine nature created all things as John 1 bears out, through him were all things created. In fact, there was not a single thing that was created that he did not have a hand in. Then the raising of Lazarus from the dead should not actually be quite extraordinary to us, should it? Neither should walking on the water or turning bread and fish into lots of bread and fish, nor of turning water into wine. He's made the water to begin with. And we typically look at these things and we, we get it out of sorts, almost like we expect them to just be human. Yet the most surprising part of the incarnation of Jesus is not that he's capable of divine things, it's that God is capable of being one of us. And so actually some of the most extraordinary aspects of Jesus' ministry are when he is not doing divine miracles. And so when we come to something like this, where the glory of God is on full display, what should stand out to us is not the action of the miracle. In fact, we're not even going to get to the miracle today because it's such a long section. John includes so many details around the story that it's important for us to slow down when we come to this. Uh, Even so, we're going to be in 16 verses today, which is uh, almost a record for me. Um, John 11, 1 through 16 is our goal. He's not even going to be in Bethany by the time we He's not even going to be there with Mary and Martha by the time we get to the end of today's lesson. So it is all about the sickness, the death, and the patience and timing of God. Let's see it. John 11, 1 through 16. May I just say, it is good to be back with you all. Um, I miss my church when I'm not at it. Um, we uh, do bring greetings. There is a small little enclave of, uh, of Christians in Rome that are uh, Baptists that we got to meet with this past Sunday, and they sent their greetings along uh, to you all, uh, and I brought our greetings to them. So, yes, the church in Rome. That was quite an experience. All right. If you'll stand in honor of God and his word, John chapter 11, 1 through 16. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, well, Lord, if, if he's just fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go up, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to a fascinating text We are so very grateful that you recorded these in your word. We are grateful that you preserved them throughout the history of your church. And we are even more grateful, Father, that your spirit illumines them to our hearts this day, not so that we just merely understand what is here, but, Father, that we love your word. That is a miracle that is beyond what we have earned. Father, we pray that a greater miracle is even done, that we would desire one another love your word. And at work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray this this day. We know it is a tall request and a tall order, but we make it nonetheless. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. The nature of the miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, I'm just giving away the end. I'm assuming you've all been to Sunday school once in your life. Um, Lazarus doesn't stay dead the whole time. He comes out of the tomb. But the amount of information about what is going on beforehand that John gives us is staggering. He gives us the delay. He gives us the response. He gives us the words of Thomas, stuff that none of the other gospel writers write. None of the synoptic gospels write anything about this story, and yet John makes it one of the pinnacle aspects of his story, which is fascinating. Because in the seven signs, I'd argue eight, but I'm alone in that. In the seven signs that Jesus performs in the gospel of John, this is the seventh, bringing to culmination all the pictures that have been along to what is he actually here for. Right before we go to the upper room and he establishes himself clearly and plainly as not only the way, but the truth, and also, as we're going to see in the coming today and the next couple of weeks, the life. As Christ continues to portray himself as God and as man incarnate, we see that what comes from him is everything leading to the glory of God. We have seen it multiple times, and here it is now explicit. The way that John spells this out is fascinating in and of itself. One, I like that we actually have a little bit more information about Thomas. Thomas, I, you know, you got to feel bad for Thomas. One, I, I, if there was one disciple that I understand almost thoroughly, it's Thomas. Uh, and everyone knows him because, I mean, what's his nickname? What does everyone call him? So unfortunate, but so true. It, it's, it's his entire reference is about one thing that happened the day of resurrection. Which, from his perspective, I can fully understand. All the other ten disciples got to see something, and I alone got left out from that. I think you're all, you know, a little water-on-the-brain type problems. And then he had to wait a whole other week before Jesus came and said, fine, let me meet you where you are. But John uses this. And it's one of the most fascinating things, and he starts doing it here in today's passage with Thomas, because Thomas is being put forward similar to Nicodemus, someone who should know better, but is still a skeptic. And here, we see that the background of Thomas here is 
There's no doubting of Thomas here at all. In fact, as they see it, Jesus, if he tries to go and, in their minds, comfort Mary and Martha because Lazarus is going to die, they're just like, well, so are we if we go now. They, we just escaped from there. They were trying to stone you, and while it was nice that you kind of like slipped between them or whatever exactly happened, we can't really expect that to happen again. Maybe they'll stone you again. If we go with you, we're going to die too. And so Jesus goes, I'm going. And one of the great things I love about Thomas is he just looks around at all the other guys and is like, I guess we're going to go die. Let's, let's go. And that's where we get introduced to Thomas here in the Gospel of John. So we're getting through all of that today, and we're going to focus specifically on the way in which Jesus interacts with his disciples and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, fascinating stuff. Let's dig into it. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 1. A certain man was ill. We don't know what illness. All we know is that it led him to death. Or excuse me. Let me be very clear here. It led him through death. It's very different than to say it led to death. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, uh, right outside Jerusalem, village of Mary and her sister Martha. We get this wonderful detail. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, most of you have been here through the whole Gospel of John with me here. Where did we see that story? We didn't. John didn't tell us about that story. That happened in the synoptics. That happened earlier. But what we do have from John is an apparent, obvious familiarity with his readers that they knew that story. Whether it's from oral tradition or from one of the other Gospels, John was the last one written, so that makes sense. But here he's explaining. He said, this is the Mary who came and broke the, the um, alabaster flask of nard onto his feet and onto his head and cried tears and wiped them off with her hair and all that kind of stuff. That was this Mary. That actually also happened again during his uh, Passion Week, but that was another woman. The, the first time it happened was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And so we have this story of these sisters and Lazarus, whom Jesus has a relationship, a very, very close relationship of friendliness to them that we have never heard of in the Gospel of John. We're just set right down into it. In fact, Lazarus isn't even given a name at first. A certain man was ill. And it has us introduce this understanding of something that we would be, it's taking us from the familiar to the unfamiliar. We are familiar with suffering like this, yes? Sicknesses befall somebody and it takes them. It takes us from something familiar and John it's not just a way to speak. It's actually taking us from where we are and dragging us into the story. Someone was ill. Someone was going to die. Here's how Jesus responded to that. Now think about that with me for a second. What is the purpose of including all of these details? Why include the detail that when Jesus, for instance, heard about this, he just stopped doing anything for two days and waited while great suffering was happening in Bethany? Is it because he doesn't care? Is it because he wasn't aware? Is it because he was busy, he had to go to the store that day, or game was on, distracted, he was out hunting? John is taking the opportunity 
to use one of the most fantastic miracles and introduce us to something that is familiar and then show us the spectacular. And he's going to take us from something we can all understand, which is the sufferings of illness that lead to the sufferings of others. A certain man was ill, Lazarus. And, and John makes no quips about it. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha hold a very special place in Jesus' heart. They are personal friends of his. That doesn't happen very often. You don't have a lot of references to Jesus' personal friends like this. The sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he says something that's very confusing. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There's purpose in it. Death is not the goal of this sickness. You say, well, that seems a little bit uninformed. Lazarus' sickness did lead to death. And see, that is the difference here. It led through death. Death was not the final word on this sickness. It wasn't that the sickness leads to death. It is that you need to see it one step beyond that. It led through death to the glory of God. John is using this story to draw us and our own sufferings into this story to realize when we suffer as Christians and when we experience loss, when we experience even great losses... It has nothing to do, simply because our circumstances seem to say, us, say to us this, it has nothing to do with Christ not loving us. When something horrible befalls your life, it is not because God does not love you. If the timing of God does not match with yours, Let me put it another way. Since the timing of God will not match up with yours, and sufferings come at very inopportune times from your perspective, it does not mean that God is not paying attention. It means that those sufferings, even the outcomes of those sufferings, is not the final word. And John is speaking to his readers. Remember, Why is it, what is the overarching theme of the entire Gospel of John? I have it up on the screen every single time we're in here. That you may believe and live. It is not that you may have a happy life and all the sufferings will be gone. No, Christians are promised suffering. I don't I don't mean promised in the sense of warned that sufferings might come. No, we are promised sufferings because it's through them that God sanctifies us. It is through grave difficulties that God does deep work on our hearts. The job of the Christian is not to avoid such sufferings. The job of the Christian is to go through them to the glory of God. You say, how is it that God will be glorified in this suffering or that We may never know. But we must come alongside one another to continually remind one another, do not lose sight of the glory of God. Do not lose sight of Christ in your sufferings. They will tell you many lies. 
God does not care about me, God is not paying attention to me, or even worse, God has it out for me. None of those are right interpretations. None of them. These sufferings make us patient for the world to come. And in case our thick heads don't get it, John hits us over the head with it again. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved her sister Mary. Jesus loved Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Stop. What? He loved them, so he avoided going there where he could have prevented something. Now, truth be told, the amount of time it takes to travel, by the time he waited two days, by the time he got there, Lazarus was dead four days. It wouldn't have prevented his death. What is he doing? He loved them, so he avoided them for the next two days and then went to them. It doesn't say that he was out doing something else. He just waited Any of you have been in that state? Something horrible is going on, some grave illness, sickness, suffering that is going on in your life, and it seems to stop time, and it just pauses. And you look out into the world, and you see everyone else going around like you don't matter. They carry around their days. They don't know the grave problem in your heart. We experience the same thing with our losses, don't we? And since we do not see God face to face yet, but only through a glass dimly, sometimes we may associate what we see others doing in complete ignorance to our own suffering and impose that on God. And the same thing here. Mary and Martha were absolutely distraught by the time Jesus came there. We will see that next week. We will see that they came up to him. If you were just here, he wouldn't have died because I've seen you heal sick people. If you're going to heal anyone, you will certainly heal the one whom you love. Christian, do not think that God's love for you can be called into question because you are suffering. And do not think your sufferings come only because of disciplining and because of sin in your life. We are in a fallen world, my friends, and sufferings befall us all, some more than others, to the glory of God. Will you understand it? No. Is the only question we ask when things happen, isn't it? Why? Why this? Why now? Why me? Do you know the answer? No, you don't. And neither do I. And neither does anybody. Save God alone. The purposes of God in a fallen world to bring about the ultimate salvation of his people take ways and turns that we do not expect nor want. 
but the goal of salvation is the glory of God. And so we may be well assured that whatever befalls our path, be it suffering, be it joys, or be it seeming silence from God in the midst of our own sufferings, we know where it ends. And it's not the grave. It is life eternal. And John reminds us of this. He says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Here's the fun thing. Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to get ill before he ever left Bethany last time. And he didn't give him a bunch of vitamins. He knew he was going to die years before that. He knew he was going to die back when he created the heavens and the earth. And still he waits. And still he stays away. And some people look at that and say, well, he just allowed this suffering. That's not what the scriptures say here. It says the suffering had purpose. Dear Christian, don't miss that. Evil does not happen to befall us because God is allowing it. Evil comes across our path by the purpose and promise and preservation and salvation of God's glory. And he will bring us through it. And it will never take the path that you anticipate or desire. I did not want to lose my mother earlier this year, and yet I passed through that. But the grave promise of that is that that's not the end of that story, is it? If it were, we would be right to be despondent. No, instead, such things and the days of our lives are written before the foundation of the world, and God will bring us through them. None of this was a surprise to Jesus. Not only in those two days did Jesus wait, but the two days before that, and the two years before that, and the two decades before that, all the time he could have set up a way to prevent Lazarus from dying. Don't contract this illness. Don't go to the marketplace that day. You will catch tuberculosis or whatever the case may be. And so it shouldn't surprise us that all, that when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. He had already stayed there for months. Knowing full well that Lazarus was going to contract this illness and fall asleep. There's another part to this that nobody anticipated. And John doesn't mention, but in the culture at the time, they would have fully heard when John was writing it. By the time Jesus comes to Lazarus's tombs, it's been how many days since he died? Four. Do you know what the cultural belief was about the possibility of resuscitation and how long the soul hung around the body after death? Three days. Jesus's intention was to meet them where they were. Is that correct? No, that's not a biblical teaching. It was a cultural teaching. And he met them exactly where they were at. 
and says, this is not resuscitation. I am not the resuscitation and the life. Resurrection. There is no place in Jewish thought to the idea of resuscitation after the third day. And so we may look at that, and a lot of commentaries will say, see, this is why Jesus waited two days. It doesn't explain why he waited the other months and years. But it does show us one of the side effects of this is that God will come in and challenge our preconceptions and always exceed them if we're paying attention. And if we look to the glory of God beyond any of our own discomforts, And so he said to his disciples, verse 7, let us go again to Judea. The disciples said to him, how hard would this be for John to write? You know, you got to feel at least somewhat bad every time they recount what the disciples' reaction was when they're completely missing every point. And they have to sit here and write it down. Two of the disciples wrote two of the Gospels, Matthew and John. And Mark was a disciple of Peter, so he wrote Peter's account of this kind of stuff. But every time you see them, they're just like putting their foot in their mouth, they're saying something dumb, and John is always trying to fix it. Look, at this point, we didn't know anything. Like, you know, it's just, you got to feel a little bit bad for them. But here, he kind of spells it out. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. Jesus answers and says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What in the world is he talking about? That is not an answer to the question of if you go to Judea, they're going to stone you. And Jesus is here talking about the length of days and times and light and darkness and walking and stumbling and all of these types of things. This is perhaps one of the hardest things for Christians, especially in our culture, to actually grasp. And so I want to take a bit of time with it today. We like certainty. We do not like to be assured of things. If someone tells us something, we go prove it. We want to be certain. We want to, we want to test it with our own senses, with our own appeal to epistemology or whatever the case may be. We do not want to take someone's word for it. We want to see it. We want to be able to conceive of it. From the disciples' perspective, everything in their experience has taught them that if they walk through Judea again, they're all going to be stoned. They even reserve themselves to this. Look at Thomas's perspective. Fine, we're all going to go die. Okay, I guess, that's, I guess that's the end of our path now. That's, that's it. End of the Jesus story. We're just going to all go and die. And Jesus takes this time when they say this to remind them about what true walking in the light actually is and what prevents stumbling versus walking in darkness. Because them anticipating to die when Jesus says, let's go to Judea, is not walking in knowledge and it is not walking in light. Instead, it's walking in darkness. They think they can have safety if they stay up in Galilee. 
And Jesus says, we must go through there. Judea. We must go to Lazarus' house. Is it going to risk them getting stoned? Well, from the disciples' perspective, yes. What about from Jesus' perspective? No. See, that's the difference. Jesus spoke to them something, and for their experience, it didn't really match up with the best way to do things. It didn't like line up with best practices. Instead, Jesus says, that's walking in the night. You're feeling around with your toes, trying to make sure you don't step on a Lego in the middle of the night. I promise you'll step on it. You're trying to make sure it's okay because you want to verify that every step is sure-footed, right? We even use that terminology. And Jesus says, just follow me. Well, what if it doesn't make sense? What if it passes through great suffering? Follow me. So what about that as light? Because all you need to focus on is him. What if the results of that are more suffering and more frustrations and more losses and more illnesses and more? It will be worth it. Every day it will be worth it. The alternative is not another way of getting to your destination. The alternative is stumbling and falling. You see, there's not, it's not like Jesus is a rock among other rocks. Jesus is a rock amid all the sand. There's not alternative ways to walk in the light. There's not alternative words to depend on. There's not an alternative savior on which to trust. There is not another name under heaven by which we may be saved. There is one. And even if it comes down to something as simple as Thomas, Peter, James, John, etc., 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 let's go to Judea. And they all answer back in one voice, we're all going to die. And Jesus answers back and says, that's walking in the night. You're seeking to preserve your life when I go to raise someone up. Just follow me. Well, what if it risks stoning? Still worth it. What if it brings me to the grave? It will bring you through it. You see, the promises of the gospel do not stop at a gravestone. They continue to the new heavens and new earth. The promises of the gospel are not affected by being stoned to death. And John is introducing his readers to this reality that following Christ is the safest, most dangerous place for us to be. Because here's the thing, no matter what suffering comes our way, no matter what effects come our way, we are traveling with the resurrection. We are traveling with the life himself. Come what may, that is walking in the light. And as he says to them, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles. That's his end. That's what's promised. 
There is no such thing as life without suffering. There's either suffering with Christ and because of Christ or suffering without Christ and probably because of Christ. There is no outcome where we say, I want happiness, fullness, and joy here and now. You want that? Do not follow Christ. You want to try to drag God off of his throne and bring him here into this world. You can't do that. He already did that. And then he ascended on high and gave gifts to us. One day we will live with him in the new heavens and new earth. But that is not today. We must first pass through all of these things. As he works on us, that which is pleasing in his sight. And John is showing us in a very real picture that he was actually there for and was on the wrong side of. We did not want to go to Judea. We feared death and we were standing there with the one who conquers it. We were fools to think that. How little trust do I have in Christ to think that doing something that would risk mere discomfort is not worth it. After saying these things, verse 11, Jesus said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him up. Now the disciples are like, wait a second. You're risking all of our lives to go wake him up? If he's sleeping, he'll get better. This makes no sense at all. And again, you can feel for John because he's writing this, saying, from our perspective, that was the most ludicrous thing you could think of. If, if the outcome of his sickness is just that he's going to sleep a lot, he's going to wake up, why do you have to risk all of our necks in order for him to wake up a little bit earlier? You can see the misunderstanding, snowballing with the uh, fear, snowballing with the, uh, with the misinterpretation, and all of these things. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Right? We're good. We're good. None of us need to go to Judea. Nobody needs rocks to the head. Everyone's fine. Right? Good? John writes, verse 13, Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought, and there he's writing of himself, that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I don't know if there's anything more comforting than the way that the New Testament talks about Christians who die in Christ. Sleep. Sleep to awaken. Sleep is temporary. The classic way to talk about death is permanent. Sleep isn't. You go to sleep, you anticipate to wake up the next day. That is how the New Testament talks about death as a Christian. We sleep, anticipating to wake up. Anticipating the seeing of our Savior face to face. Anticipating resurrection. Anticipating a life that does not end. 
But that was a little bit too much for the disciples that day, so Jesus just tells them plainly, fine, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. What a brutal thing to say. somebody else's death may cause you to believe in me. Look what he says. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. This illness, he had said, does not lead to death. It is for instead the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. By extension, it is also so that you may believe. Lazarus is not the only one here that needs resurrection. So that you may believe and live. It is the entire reason John states that he is writing this gospel. It is so that his readers may also, just like the disciples, believe on Christ and live. The same thing for the disciples is the same thing for us, is the same thing why John is writing this. It is the same thing for Lazarus. You're going to see it when we get there. It is an astounding story, and the way that Jesus actually manufactures it and expresses it, even the things that he says, and the way Lazarus responds, having absolutely nothing to do with Lazarus' natural ability Jesus just commands a corpse to listen to him. It's kind of remarkable. Um, I'm excited about it when we get there. But before we get there, we can't miss all of these things because the, the, the truncated, like, annotated version of, of it never includes these details. Because the whole point of this occurrence, why Jesus did not stop Lazarus from falling ill, here's the thing. We have already seen Jesus healing somebody from a distance that was ill. Just healing them across the nation from that same hour. We've seen that in the synoptics. We've seen that before. But here, Jesus specifically, and I do not like using the term allows. That makes it sound like evil is this uh, unpredictable thing that God like kind of puts in a fence. That's not the way to put it. Jesus had this happen purposefully with purpose and reason. Look at the statements he makes. Verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Look at the way he refers to it in verse 15. For your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. These things happen for a reason. And only here in this story of Lazarus do we see that reason pulled back. It doesn't mean it's the same reason for why suffering has befallen your life or mine. We may never understand the reason. That's the stuff of the invisible realm in the mind of God that has not been fully revealed to us. But we know who we're walking with. And we know he always does what is right and what is good. 
And we know that all things work together to the salvation of his people, that ultimate good that he is working in this world, and it will lead to his glory, which is why we exist. Why does this happen? Why does that happen? We don't know. But we know our God. And if our traveling takes us through Judea, where we anticipate stoning, may I, for one, give a positive voice to the response of Thomas. Let's go and die with him. If churches had subtitles, I think that would be in my top three choices. Let's go and die with him. Is that not the call to the Christian? If anyone would desire to follow after me, let him pick up his own cross and follow me. Where did he go when he picked up his cross? He went to die. Let us go and die with him. I appreciate Thomas's perspective here. And it's kind of frustrating that the only thing people ever talk about Thomas is how he doubted the resurrection at the end. Let's start his discussion here. Let's go and die with him. He may not understand the resurrection. He may not understand its anticipation. He may not understand how significant of a thing that is. But listen to this. Wisdom in the midst of foolishness, which is the best that we can muster. Wisdom in the midst of foolishness. He has no idea what's about to happen. All he knows is the promise of God. May I say, let us put ourselves into his shoes. We have no idea what's going to happen in the coming year or decade. And we have no idea why the past year and decade happened to us. But we know the promises of God. And we can grab a hold of them and with that kind of fervor say the same thing. Even if it means our death, let's go with him. Even if it means grave difficulty and years of loneliness, let us go with him. Even if it means the loss of comforts, pleasures, jobs, families, life, let us go with him. That wisdom is deep in the history of the people of God. You know one that comes directly to mind? Moses. Wherever you send us, wherever we wander, only go with us. The same promise of Christ coming into this world as Emmanuel promises the same thing in his great commission right before his ascension. I will be with you wherever you go to all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world, calling them to faith in Christ and repentance and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I will be with you. Let's go and die with him. The alternative is to die without him. Staying in Galilee will not afford you safety. It will just afford you loneliness and stumbling in the dark. 
He is the light of the world. And as he is with us, though our foot threaten to stumble and fall, though our persecutions may seek to undo us, though our sufferings may seek to despondency, still he is with us, still we are not under condemnation, and still he is our faithful God. And I can't think of a better way to wrap up our response than to follow the example of Thomas here. Let us go also that we may die with him. Let us do the same, even if it takes us through grave risks. God, give us strength. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word. For herein we find treasures deep and broad, treasures new and challenging. May it delight our hearts, not only today, may your presence with us in our fellowship, in your word, may it drive us to our knees in humility and in gratitude to what you are doing and have done in our midst. We pray that we sing the bold song of the redeemed and that it never leave our lips. That to you belong blessing and glory and honor and wisdom and power and strength. May we aim for your glory above all things that could only benefit us in the temporal. May we look not only to the things that can be seen, but Father, may we look to those things which are unseen. And that in our sufferings, we recognize that you are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We thank you for our sufferings. We thank you for the difficulties of our lives. For in them we see your promises ever so clearer. We thank you that your promises are not dependent on this world alone. For this world is fading. Christ is over the horizon. We thank you for your presence with us wherever we go. We pray that it delight our hearts with the truth of your word, with the fellowship of your saints this day. In your son's name, amen.